In April of 2020, after investigating two suspicious shipping containers arriving from Ecuador, Hong Kong authorities found 26 tons of dried shark fins, worth about 1.1 million US dollars, from an estimated 38,500 threatened and protected silky and thresher sharks. Customs officers arrested a 57-year-old male suspect. At the heart of the bust was a DNA toolkit, a testing system, co-developed by scientist Diego Cardenosa. The DNA toolkit gives inspectors a quick, reliable, and at 96 cents per sample, cost-effective way to detect and identify threatened species. After spending a year living in Hong Kong, working with authorities to get them ready to use the tool themselves, this seizure was confirmation that DNA testing is a huge weapon in the war against the illegal trade of not only sharks, but many species. Colombian-born Diego is not only the brains and brawn behind so many papers in regards to the shark fin trade and the collection of samples on the ground, but was also behind the groundbreaking science featured in shark water extinction through the genetic identification of threatened shark species in pet food and beauty care products. I've respected and followed him for many years now, even got to film inside his lab as he was testing these products, and I know he's really on the front line of science fighting the shark fin trade perhaps the biggest threat to sharks. Most recently, his work involved mapping the populations of sharks around the globe, showing an alarming absence of this great species. In this show, we look into some of the amazing work being conducted by scientific superhero Diego, from how COVID-19 has affected the wildlife trade, to what it's like to live in China for a year to collect shark fins. It's a must-listen for anyone considering a future in marine biology. Anyone that wants to know more about the laws in place to protect sharks and the shark fin trade itself. After this first seizure of shark fins, a ripple effect has taken place. Since May, Ecuador has hired 75 new inspection officers, banned the trade of the oceanic white tip and four hammerhead species, bringing the total number of protected shark species to nine and also announced several new shark conservation projects to ensure the safety and the future of shark populations. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this particular shark story, and remember to be like a shark and never stop swimming. Now to throw him into the deep end, I want to introduce you to Diego. Good morning or good afternoon in Colombia. Yes, yeah, good afternoon. It's four, four o'clock in the afternoon here. Uh, so I, for everybody listening, I want to know, what's your official title? Tell me about your background. So, well, my official title at the moment would be uh, a distinguished postdoctoral research fellow from Florida International University. Damn. Um, That's a fancy but title. Then, it is a fancy title. <laughs> but then uh, my background was more or less like most scientists, I would say. Uh, I did my bio- bachelor's degree here in Colombia in biology. And then I did a master's again in bi- biology. Then after that, I went to, well, I went to Fiji. I was very lucky. I was offered a one-year position in Fiji to um, to start a shark conservation project there with um projects abroad cool and then once i was done with that i started my phd at stony brook university in new york and then i just finished my phd last may which is amazing and i've been like watching your journey along the way and it's just there's never a dull moment in your research like yours are the only papers (laughs) that i actually can get all the way through and read eventually as you know um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you read them you read them quite late, but you end up reading it. It's awesome. Yeah, I get around to it. Um <laughs> and what like what made you want to do what you're doing? Um well, I don't know, like I don't know if how it was for you, um let's say the the passion that you have for sharks, but for me it started like very early. I don't actually remember when it everything started. Like I guess sharks have always been part of my of my life 
I don't remember any <laughs> time in my life where sharks, where I wasn't like obsessed with sharks. It's something that has always been there. But then as I grew up and I started reading and my parents were giving me, you know, like Na National Geographic uh, movies and things like that, I guess I realized that I wanted to to help them somehow. And in the way that I that I thought it was the most impactful and I, I could have the, the highest impact was with science. So that's when I decided that to to pursue like a scientific career towards shark conservation which you really have and i think like a lot of people get into science wanting to make a difference but not everybody gets to the level that you've gotten to for sure uh i think i've been i've been lucky enough and i've had a lot of help in in um let's say in the journey i've met very important people in my career and mentors all over the place that have you know like presented me with opportunities that i was able to to um let's say to bring them home and and take advantage of those opportunities but but yeah i think i've been very lucky uh in that regard but it is hard right and you've made lots of sacrifice and is science something that you'd recommend to anybody that wants to make a difference well, yeah, I would recommend it because I've had a lot of fun and um and I and I think I've been able to contribute uh somehow towards our conservation, but but like everything it does have um their issues and, and complications and, and sacrifices that you have to make. Uh on the personal level it's not easy um in terms of your your relationships with the rest of the world like with your friends your family um because you're not i'm I'm not in colombia or i'm not in one place long enough yeah so so during my phd i went to like 15 different countries i lived in three um so it, it was really hard to to leave people behind girlfriends or friends or family my dog blew I had to leave him behind uh, a lot of times, so it's so it's in in that sense, it's not an easy an easy thing to do, and you have to. I, I could have said no to many of those opportunities, but but you know, for for somebody that, as passionate as I am, it, it was it was very difficult to say no to an opportunity. So um, yeah, I think I, if if anybody hearing uh, this this conversation with you is thinking about pursuing a shark um, science career, I would I would recommend it if you're really passionate about it. Yeah, and I think that that passion is what I see in you, and and just like with conservation, it is going to require a huge amount of sacrifice, and it's not just glamorous, and there's a lot behind it. <sighs> Yeah, I guess I guess I didn't mention on, on that, but also when people, I don't know, see my Instagram or see, you know, like the paper or anything like that, people say, people might be thinking like, oh, this is awesome. And Diego spends a lot of time with sharks in the water mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, like thinking that is that kind of like glamorous career, but it's, it's not. You, you spend some time with sharks if you're lucky enough to do uh, shark field research. But most of like what I where I have been able to get the the most impactful results was in a very, very small, like a tiny, tiny uh, laboratory spending hours there yep. with stinky shark fins yep. and uh, spending hours and hours and hours behind a computer, crunching data, analyzing and, uh, you know, getting getting the publications ready. And that's most of what I do is that behind a computer. So. So if if somebody is per trying to pursue the 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 scientific career, thinking that it's all about scuba diving and having fun, and in the field is is definitely not like that. Yeah, that's a really important point to raise. And my fondest memory of you is seeing you in a tiny lab in Miami, uh, in a lab coat over some some pet food, some dog biscuits, and that's your most glamorous moment as a shark conservationist. <laughs> <laughs> right but if you thought the, the lab in miami was tiny you should have seen the one i work in hong kong <laughs> yeah it's literally like four or five meters square meters it's really really small which is the other thing i want to talk to you about you lived in hong kong you literally lived in china 
and your job was to collect shark fins. And that's just so opposing to what people expect. Like, tell me about that experience. So we, before we started like this large scale market surveys um, in my PhD, we didn't have enough data or good data about the species composition of sharks in trade. There was some some work by uh, well not not some there was actually a lot of work done by by Shelley Clark at the early 2000s, um, but then since then we didn't have anything about species composition and trade dynamics. So basically, what we found out is that um, at the time when the when the shark fin is processed, they trim it and they cut pieces at the base of the fin and here and there to make it look like visually appealing. Uh, let's say, um, and then those trimmings they sell them quite quite cheap. So that was our way to to be able to sample the shark fin trade without spending huge amounts of money. So since 2014, we've collected over well, I don't know, it has to be almost close to a ton of those offcuts. Um, no kidding, actually, like a ton in in terms of weight, but. We've been able to analyze uh, a little over eleven thousand uh, samples across the years, and and now we have a very clear picture of how the what the, what species are in trade, in what proportions, and we have been able to assess whether international regulations um, are having the desired effect or not, and um, yeah, many many different things like even trace them, trace those things back to a population of origin. So we've been able to do a lot of work in the last five years. Which is amazing. But did you like living in Hong Kong? Because it's a very crazy place. Yeah, um, yeah, I liked it. I, I think Hong Kong offers offers a very quite um, quite a high uh, quality of living. Um, it's it's a very organized and very nice city. It does have their its dark side, which is you know all these uh, shark fin markets and the and the wildlife markets but um yeah it's it's definitely a very interesting city to to experience and and kind of like deep into their culture do you remember that when we were walking down that one street and there was that big open factory with all the bags all over the floor and there was like nobody in sight and i wanted to go and check it out and you just knew which like that that was kind of gang territory and this was like wholesaler like you knew a lot about who was who on the streets there well yeah like the w- once you start living there and then i have also friends from from hong kong that there are locals there um they taught me a lot of of what to do what not to do and and what what can be dangerous and and definitely getting into a wholesale uh of shark fins without permission is definitely considered dangerous well i'll I'll do it one day <laughs> but <laughs> i want to backtrack and touch on that again so we we talked briefly about shelly clark and i remember you telling me she kind of did the first collection and the first science on on that particular area and the shark fins there and then her photographs started showing up in businesses people knew who she was and what she was doing and she became like the enemy of all the shark fin sellers in that district yeah um that's what i heard i was i was very young at that time so i i I didn't see it but um but yeah she started she had a very close uh relationship with the fin traders and and they allowed her to to go into auctions and and collect samples from from those things, but um, yeah, I don't know exactly what what occurred there, but I guess I guess her results are showing, let's say, the bad side of the business. So yeah. I, I don't think that that was very well for that was received very well by them, but but I don't know the the details of of what happened. So I mean, there's definitely from what I saw, an element of danger of what you're doing. Like if these people knew that you were taking the shark fin samples and highlighting a lot of the illegal things occurring in the trades, they, their businesses would be threatened and they wouldn't be so cool with you walking around taking samples. So you kind of do have to keep a low profile, don't you? Um, I I guess, um, although I'm not the one that goes in and buys the, the samples, um, so I don't have a lot of – I don't have to – show my face in the shark fin markets uh, a lot just just when i, <laughs> I come think to the visit. one the one 
Exactly. <laughs> the one time that I was that I was um let's say extra careful because I didn't know what was gonna happen was I don't know if you if you remember, but I designed a quick test to identify uh CITES listed fins once they arrived to Hong Kong in the containers with a with a DNA toolkit. Yes. But then when I was working in Hong Kong with, with the authorities, they also asked me if I could design one for European eels, which is a critically endangered species of eel from the from the European um from the European Union, the countries in the European Union. And it's banned for, for all trade and and basically you cannot trade with that with that species whatsoever. And then the smugglers, what they do is they bring them to Hong Kong in the suitcases alive as, a, as larvae, and then they put them in big factories in China to grow them and then to sell them for sushi and, and meat and other stuff. Wow. But then the problem for the authorities is that they don't, they didn't have the, the tools to identify those larvae to the species level. So they couldn't prosecute the smugglers why once they identify them at the airport so i designed this tool and once i was invited to go to the airport and check four suitcases full of european eels from two smugglers and at that time those smugglers saw my face and i was with them in a tiny room so i identify all the four suitcases as having critically endangered uh, european eel and then when i left the airport i was like fuck these guys are going to jail for not a long period of time what's gonna happen next I, at that time i was like whoa that, that was that was maybe not too smart to to be like to be able for them to identify me but nothing happened nothing occurred well i'm glad we're getting this podcast out of the way now um because pretty soon <laughs> you'll be a wanted man and that's like that side of things people just don't understand the level of danger that there is in in this kind of thing like you're messing with a big trade and I think when you have the power to influence legislation, you do become the enemy of that trade. And that's like a really powerful and crazy thing you're doing. And I think you like to downplay it a lot, but I see it as pretty cool, pretty badass. Um, so we've spoken a lot about uh, the shark fins in Hong Kong. And when I was there, I remember asking you, because there are so many, there are so many shark fins for sale there's just stacks and stacks of them in certain places and there's boxes and boxes. And I asked you, like, do people actually buy this product anymore? Is it actually being moved? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely uh, a significant demand that is still in, in Hong Kong and, and across Southeast Asia. And that's what keeps the what keeps the, the fin trade going, you know, like if, if there was no demand, definitely the business would be over, I would say um so it's definitely a a big component of of the big problem is that the demand's still there it has decreased in in the last decade let's say but but it's definitely there and and the and the volumes are so high that even a small uh demand it's still it's still you know like thousands if not millions of sharks being killed yeah so we're living in the middle of a pandemic right now Tell me a little bit from what you know, how COVID has affected this wildlife trade or in particular shark fins. Um, I'm not sure. Um, we don't have, I don't have, we don't have the data to, to be able to say something about it, but I don't think it has, it has had like a, a big impact, at, at least for sharks. I don't, I don't see, I don't see it. That's kind of how maybe I was in a feeling few years about we'll, it too. Yeah, we'll realize, but like fishermen are still fishing, the fishing fleets are still out there. Um, you know, the the transportation companies in and containers are still working. So yeah, I don't, I don't I don't think that that's having a lot of uh of impact, but we'll see. Like I, I think it's too early to to be able to say something about it, but maybe in the future we'll realize that COVID actually helped or or make or may or made things worse. I I couldn't say. I definitely saw like a, a premature uh, celebration from the conservation community when COVID was linked back to the wildlife trade and certain bans were put in place. But the, the volume that we were seeing does, doesn't seem like it would come to a halt at any point. So it's, I guess, like you say, it's difficult to know, but I, I don't see it having a massive impact either. But hopefully No, and, and even, even if those policies were put in place by China to stop the wildlife trade, those 
only include terrestrial species. So for sharks, they didn't include sharks. Yeah. Um, Tierra, what, what species do you think is most at risk if we don't change the way that we enforce legislation or the way the shark fin trade operates? Through your research, what species are you most worried about? Um, good question, but I would have to say the scalloped hammerhead. The scalloped That's, hammerhead. Yeah, I think that would be I'm very high up in my in my priorities. Very, very high up. Yeah. That's really because sad. because we've been doing this this uh research through the offcuts in Hong Kong since 2014. And the species uh went from endangered to critically endangered while we were doing all these surveys. And the relative proportion of of the scallop hammerhead in trade all across years is still the same. So we don't see any changes in the relative proportion of that species. So it, it, it means that it's like, I don't know, it's like the third or fourth most common species in trade and it's critically endangered. So I don't think it has a lot of time left, to be honest. And also I started a project, I remember, um, I don't know if you remember, but when you were in Hong Kong with me, I was showing you these little tiny fins that were being sold in the markets. Yeah. So we started a project uh, that is ongoing at the moment with, with this uh, small shark fin category, which we didn't know anything about it. Is it the same composition as the, the species composition as the one we were seeing with the offcuts and the large fins, or would it be different? So the preliminary results definitely show us that the species composition is different from these small um, shark fins. They're coming from juveniles, from large species, but coastal species. And some of the most common ones are the scallop hammerheads. That mean we're hitting the 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 hammerhead at both adult and as the in the juvenile stage. So yeah, it's, the, it's not looking good for that species, to yeah. be honest. So when you did some of that that research, you found a large majority of the traded fins in Hong Kong were not actually accounted for. Like they didn't have the paperwork required to make them legal. So is it safe to say that a lot of the shark fins being sold are actually illegal and shouldn't be for sale? Well, I would say the large majority of the cited listed shark fins, because uh, blue shark is is a probably over fifty percent of the trade, is a very very large majority of the trade, and uh, it is still legal to trade them, and and they're no they're not they don't have restrictions or protections uh, for their international trade. So those fins are legal, but I would say that most of the shark fins from scallop hammerheads are. It's, it, I think it would be safe to say that most of them are coming without the required payments. Does that did that surprise you at all? Like how much kind of infringements you found during your studies there? Did you expect the market to have um, such no. an illegal presence? No, it's not surprising. It's not surprising. Uh, it, I think it would be more surprising if we saw a very steep or very pronounced change in the dynamic of the trade once those species were listed on CITES because CITES takes time to to be able to I don't know to see the, the, the results that we would like to see. It takes time for countries to be able to enforce them properly and and you know it's it's not an easy thing. So definitely um it's taking time. Uh, hopefully it will take um a short amount of time every time every every time we list a species, um, but there are there are countries that are making progress. So hopefully we we can increase this trend all over the world and and enhance their their um, capabilities to detect this illegal trade and stop it and you know deter it. Yeah. Somehow. So we have the laws; they need to be enforced. We need more countries on board, um, which which is what happened recently with that seizure in Hong Kong when they were able to immediately test the fins because of the DNA toolkit that you developed. Yeah, but also keep in mind that uh, before 2013, only three shark species were listed on under CITES. And then since 2013, every single uh, conference of the parties, we've had the sharks that were proposed to be listed, listed on CITES. So that means they are definitely supported by CITES parties and there are more countries on board uh, with these conservation initiatives. We just need better enforcement. That's that's kind of like the, the key of, of the problem and better fisheries management because 
it's not just a matter of Hong Kong and the and the trade towards Hong Kong, but also what the species um, like the pressure that you're imposing on certain species at the country level or at the regional level. So we cannot only focus on on the end of the supply chain. We need to focus also at the beginning of the supply chain and make sure that there are uh, fisheries management regulations put in place. Otherwise, the mortality will be the same, even if those fins were, are not traded. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about CITES for a minute, because CITES is quite interesting. Um, and basically, many countries are part of this agreement to protect certain species, and then there's the two different appendix of CITES. And for me, it, it's like I've only really learned about it in the last year, because in Indonesia, I was seeing species that I was under the illusion were protected being landed at shark fin markets. But some are able to be traded domestically, not internationally. Like there's so many interesting and intricate parts of CITES. But one thing I found quite interesting and upsetting was that a lot of export factories for shark fins will actually obtain permits to trade protected species. So there are loopholes and there are ways around certain laws in some cases. Well, but what do you mean protected? Um, because then CITES what does for sharks is they regulate the trade that doesn't mean they ban it and it's prohibited you can still do it right with the required permit so that doesn't mean they're protected and once they're on site is that also doesn't mean that a country will protect that species from not being landed so i guess that's where the confusion was that you thought that because of the scallop it was on site it was protected and nobody could land one yeah which yeah. CITES does not CITES doesn't have to any say of what a country does or does not with their fisheries. They can only say what can be traded across their borders, but not, but not what is being caught. So I think that's where a lot of the, let's say, Instagram uh, conservation movement is is uh, sometimes misled or, or they, they have some misunderstanding on that. Because not just because it's on CITES, it's protected. It's just it means that there are some regulations put in place for the international trade. Exactly. So what I hate is seeing people kind of, oh, this animal's on CITES, and then they just relax, which is certainly not the case. Um, it's a great thing. It's it's helping a lot, but it does not mean full protection. And it, it, even then it has to be enforced and there's ways around it. So I think that that needs to be made really clear amongst the conservation community as well. Right. And also, and also, CITES is, is a very well-organized uh, convention. And one thing that occurs, and that's when, when the CITES listings really uh, are, let's say, applied, <laughs> it's when there's something called review of significant trade, which means that if the convention has evidence that a country is not doing enough towards uh, complying with the with the appendix one or appendix two of certain species, the the convention can trigger something called review of significant trade. And that means that they give a certain amount of time to the country to put in place regulations to reverse the trend that they've been seeing. Right. And then if that if those trends are not or or the problems or the issues that that certain countries might have are not solved, then CITES has the power to impose uh, sanctions to the country, and that's no 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 country wants those sanctions to be put um, to put in place. So definitely, when when CITES does a review of significant trade for sharks, then I think we're gonna see we're gonna see some some steep change. I would say. So there's they've always got that in their back pocket. That's good to know. Have they ever done yeah, that yeah. before? The, the convention. They've done it not for sharks, but they've done it for plenty of species, from for other species, because, uh, I don't know, CITES has over 36,000 species in their appendices. So definitely reviews of significant rate have occurred in the past. And then that's the beauty of CITES. It does have teeth and does have the power to, to, uh, to make a country move towards something because the, the sanctions can be quite, quite uh, strict. Do you think that CITES needs to move harder and faster for sharks, or do you think there's an adequate level of protection coming out of CITES? Well, the thing is that sharks in CITES is something that is quite new. 
Um, the first, the first species that were listed on CITES were the whale shark, the basking shark, and the and the great white, and that was early 2000s, 2004. Um, so it's been a long time, and those those species are actually not being traded heavily, uh, and the protection that those species have in their countries where they occur are stronger than the ones that CITES uh, has for them. So definitely, those three are an exception to the rule. But then when we saw highly traded shark species being listed on CITES, it, it only happened until 2013. So we, we just have, you know, like, and, and, and those were enforced in 2014. So, yeah, like we only have six years of sharks on CITES. So it, it's, it's something very new and it's something that, that it has positive momentum, which has been great and is great that it's occurring. And then that uh, CITES parties are having these this commitment towards towards sharks but it's definitely something challenging and that we need to keep uh working towards a better implementation but yeah just keep in mind that cites uh has been in place since 1970s and then sharks have only have six years of history on cites so it's, it's, it's something that is not to be taken lightly i think most people myself included would not be familiar with just how new the protection of sharks, even whale sharks and great whites, actually is. So that's really fascinating. Touching on the whale but sharks. But that's, again, just, just on CITES. Just you know, on like CITES. They've been on CITES since 2004, but, but uh, high protections for great whites and whale sharks and basking sharks have been put in place way be before that because, I don't know, um, if, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you cannot land great whites in Australia. They're fully protected. Yes, they are. Unless you are working for the government and they're a risk to human safety. But in general, yes, you're not allowed to. Right. And Rena, right. So great whites, even though under CITES, they have the same regulation for international trade as a scallop hammerhead, they do have a full protection by your government in all Australian waters. So that's, that's quite significant towards, you know, uh, the conservation of great white. So a lot of the CITES listed sharks do not have the same protection at the national and regional levels as great whites, whale sharks, and basket sharks uh, have. So that's something that we might be also looking into in, in the future, like try to protect, to impose uh, higher protection for these species at the beginning of the supply chain, at, at the countries that are catching these, these, these sharks. So... We know recently there's been this whole Chinese fishing fleet thing occurring just outside the Galapagos Marine Reserve. And there was that incident of Hope, the whale shark, which all evidence is showing that there was a chance this whale shark, which was tagged, was picked up by this Chinese fishing fleet. The trade of whale sharks, how would they get around? <clears throat> just say that they, they actually were responsible for killing and obtaining Hope, the whale shark. How would they get around taking that species back and selling it? That would be extremely difficult, uh, I would say. Um, definitely, it's not occurring a lot because we, we've been able to pick up very rare species from our, from our surveys in Hong Kong, and we've never picked up a, uh, a white shark or a whale shark or a basking shark. So I don't think the levels of trade, at least for their fins, is, uh, is, is, is extremely high. I don't think so. Otherwise, we would have pick them up definitely in our surveys in China and Hong Kong. So you think it's like a rare thing, but do you think it still happens? Yeah, every now and then you see these videos of whale sharks being landed and, you know, like in a truck in the middle of the street somewhere. Uh, so I'm not saying that it, it, it doesn't occur, but it, it occurs much less than, than other shark species that are even in, in worse conservation um, status, like the, the scallop hammerhead or the great hammerhead. Them. Also. Yeah. So you not only did work in Hong Kong, but also on mainland China, which seems like a completely different ballgame. Tell me like your, your best and biggest findings about the mainland China shark fin trade. So in mainland China, we've surveyed the largest um, market there, which is quite close to Hong Kong, actually, it's just across the border. Uh, it's like, I don't know, like 150 kilometers from Hong Kong. And what we found out is that the species composition is actually quite similar. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very, very similar to, to the one we've seen in, 
in uh, in Hong Kong. So that basically means that also trade from from cites listed species between Hong Kong and China is not being well enforced because most of those fins are likely coming through Hong Kong into mainland China. Wow. Okay. Um, we worked together a little on shark water extinction. And I remember going around to lots of stores, just, you know, everyday supermarkets with Rob Stewart and collecting samples. And you were the one that tested them for us. And I think our findings were kind of shocking. Can you share like a little bit about the results with me? Right. So, so you guys gave me a bunch of, of weird stuff, actually. You, you gave me uh, dog food, you gave me fertilizers, uh, uh, cat food, cosmetics, and, and a, a lot of other stuff. And at the beginning, I didn't really know what to think about it or what, like, what was expected uh, to, to be found out. But um, it was definitely shocking that most of the cat food that we, that we, that we tested had had a mako shark in them. Um, I don't really know how a mako shark ends up in cat food. Um, I don't think is is the full shark because because the meat of of mako sharks is highly priced for human consumption. So if I would have to have a guess, is that the the scraps and the you know the 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 spine of the of the shark or the the head or who knows what else ends up in the in the pet food but but yeah it was definitely sh- shocking like 70 percent of the products that we tested had uh mako shark in them so 70 percent and like we weren't we weren't going and getting these from some like bougie boutique um wild animal store for the special pets like we were getting these from like your local Publix and winn dixie and we were just buying like your standard brands in florida yeah, I mean, it was not just one single brand or one single product. It was it was found out across products. And then one thing that I that I did uh, to make sure my results were not skewed or biased or even contaminated, I sent the samples to a different lab in Canada, and they said they did the same the same testing and they got the same results. So it was like a, a like a double test, double blind test to see if they got the same, and they actually did have the same. So that that gives quite a, a, a good confidence uh, in those results, and then in the cosmetics, I remember it was it was quite difficult to make it work because the cosmetics have a lot of um, chemicals and and other products that interfere with the genetic analysis of the sample. Uh, but we were able to pick up, I think it was a blue shark, a sharp nose, a black tip. And a scalloped hammerhead in some of these uh, beauty care products, yeah. In beauty, in things like face moisturizers, I remember buying these, and I remember just thinking, like, Rob, what are you doing? We're never going to find sharks in these. These are like your everyday beauty care products, and then you found that stuff, and it was just so shocking. And even I had to re-examine the things I use and be like, shark is in everything. And obviously, we're talking about like it would be parts of the shark, like the liver or the, the you know the certain parts that are used in cosmetics. Yeah, there's definitely the shark liver oil that is used as a moisturizing agent, but but the problem here is is I guess the the mislabeling of the product. Like if you if you could read the ingredients it's in, and it says like it does contain shark based spoline, then you are giving the consumer the option of whether they want to buy that product or not. But at this stage, you buy it and you don't know whether it has shark or not. So I think that the the labeling should be I think is the key there to allow the the consumer to to make a choice. I remember we called one of these companies up and asked them if they had shark in the product and they said yes and I asked them what what it was labeled as in the product and they called it patent amino mar complex. So they can literally make up a name to represent what the shark product is. So I think that people don't realize how widespread shark is used in our everyday products and just how hidden it is as well, which was so crazy. I think those results were just amazing and the work you did to right. find them. Was, right. I, yeah. I feel the I feel the labeling of the the correct labeling of the products will give us the tools for awareness and people be able to make this, you know, like ecological relevant 
choices in, in what products do they do they buy but at this stage it's impossible for for uh, for people to know what they're buying so so i think that's a, that's a big problem in hong kong you actually see face masks and other type of products that you can that you buy and it has only has a shark at the cover so you know it's open you know that has uh, um shark in them but because because of the label but most of the ones uh at least in the western world they're definitely not labeled as having shark or who knows what other wildlife species are in there i'm always saying the same things that we point the finger at places like china and indonesia are occurring in our countries but it's just occurring behind closed doors i think that's important for people to remember um, I want to ask you about this unreal research that you just did where you surveyed 371 reefs from 58 nations and analyzed over 15,000 hours of footage. And you found that sharks were functionally extinct in many reefs around the world. Yeah, well, I was, I was quite lucky. I, I didn't run uh, the, <laughs> the project itself. I was just one of many, many collaborators. But uh, my PhD advisor, Dr. Damien Chapman, was uh, the co-PI of the project. So um, I just I was just involved in that in that research because I I kind of like asked him if he wanted to try to survey some reefs in Colombia, and and that's how I got involved there. But yeah, it was I think it's 121 scientists from all over the world. Uh, the project went to 58 nations, 471 reefs, like you said, over 20,000 uh, hours of footage underwater. And basically what the what Global Finprint, which is this huge project found, is, is what you said. Like uh, one in every five reefs, had the, the sharks are functionally extinct. So that doesn't mean they're gone. That means that there are not enough of those uh, sharks to fulfill the ecological role that they should be playing in those reefs. So basically that the populations are highly depleted. Did that shock you? Um, I, I guess no, I guess no. Like we've, we've known that, that a lot of different shark species are, are let's say, in grave danger. Um, but also the, the problem is that we didn't have a baseline and we didn't know what the population status of those reef sharks was around the world because... I mean, you know, like you said, it's it's a it's kind of like a crazy research, and and the scale and the geographical, yeah, the geographical coverage of these of these um, project is is just incredible. Is I don't think we've we've seen something like that ever before. And you know what's uh, most important about that is now in ten or twenty years time we'll be able to do the same thing, but have this paper to compare it to. So we'll be able to see oh, either yeah, an increase definitely. or decline of sharks. Yeah, it, it definitely has created a global baseline, but also also a good thing that Global Fimprint found is that there are some reservoirs of hope. There are definitely places and reefs around the world that give us hope and they give us, um, let's say, the it, it's very clear what is working and what can be implemented around the world to, to reverse those trends and actually have an impact a, a, a positive impact on those shark populations. And some of those are, well, shark sanctuaries, we know uh, they're working quite well, but also at the fisheries level, um, the countries that lack or the reefs that lack or um, long lines and gillnets did have a higher abundance of sharks. So there are definite, definitely different tools and different regulations and different actions that governments can take to reverse these trends and global footprint has produced these what those are for countries to take action and now we've seen also different countries that are taking the data from footprint and uh the recommendations from the from the footprint project and put them in place uh in order to reverse to reverse those trends one of those countries is colombia i um i was able to have a meeting with all the stakeholders in colombia and different uh government institutions to show them what we found, and now we're um, we're putting in place a nation a nationwide project to try to see how can we implement these these um, let's say the the what global footprint has taught us that works for sharks. So I know uh, Costa Rica is doing something similar, and there are other different countries that that are having 
discussions about these actions to be taken based on global footprint results. So the impacts of this project are is, are just extremely important and they're huge. Okay, so there are some places left where sharks are healthy and happy. That is good because that was starting to get slightly depressing. But thank you for ending that on a positive note. Um, yeah, like you see, like for example, in Colombia, the survey that was conducted in Colombia, the main coast, at the, at the let's say mainland close to the coast, uh, was quite depressing. <laughs> it didn't have a lot of sharks. But then the ones that I did, which are some offshore islands in the Caribbean, um, in the Colombian Caribbean side, it had the highest abundance of reef sharks in the entire Caribbean Sea. And it was something that we didn't know before Global Fimprint. It's called the Seaflower Biosphere Reserve, and it has as many sharks or even higher abundances of sharks than Bahamas. So it's something that um, to, to be highlighted, and, and th these places are also being highlighted by Global Fimprint, and it definitely increases their conservation priority and their profile towards uh, conservation by their, by their countries. Amazing. So, Diego, I have... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so cool. I have uh, one, new, one very important question for you. Uh, who is your favorite shark conservationist? <laughs> you can take your time to think about it if you need. <laughs> I don't think you need to, but you can take your time. <laughs> oh, I won't. I won't be feeding your ego. <laughs> 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 no, but I, I honestly, I, I feel like what you do in Indonesia is quite amazing. Like I. I always thought that um, tourism is, is a, a magnificent tool for conservation. Yeah. And I think through your project, Hugh, you're definitely showing us how to do it. Thank you. So, and yeah, congrats on that one. <laughs> for people listening, I just want to say, Diego was the first person to tell me when I've said something wrong, quoted something wrong, or <laughs> try and write some fact that's not scientifically proven. So as well as being my fan, don't worry, he's also there to be the first one to correct me and tell me I'm being dumb. So yeah. I try to keep her, I try to keep her uh, in check all the time. Which is great. I love it. I think that there is such a need for conservationists like myself that never even finished high school to be collaborating with people like yourself and to bring all this information together. And I want to know, what are you working on now? What's the next amazing work that we can expect from you? Um, some of the latest, results that we've been releasing out is this um, genetic tracking of shark fins so basically each wildlife let's say wild population they have traces in their dna that can that that can only be found in that population so we're trying to find those and then compare them to the samples that we're finding in the markets and then trying to see if we can put those fins from hong kong into their respective geographical location. So do, this doesn't work at like a national level. So I couldn't say that a shark was caught in Colombia or in Panama or in Ecuador because it's all, also the same population because these sharks move a lot basically. So, but let's say the Eastern Pacific population has a distinct um, characteristics in their DNA different from the Western population, Western Pacific population, the Indian Ocean population, the Atlantic population, even North Atlantic or South Atlantic. So we can we can pinpoint large regions that are contributing uh, the large majority of these things to the trade. So uh, a collaborator of mine, which is called Andrew Fields, he did the scalloped hammerhead. He took 72 samples from the market in Hong Kong. And he traced them back to a population of origin, making the Eastern Pacific the largest contribution for that species. I think it contributed to around 61 or 62 percent of all the samples that he was able to analyze. We just recently published the same type of study for the pelagic thresher shark, and it highlights the Eastern Pacific to be contributing around 85 percent of the of the pelagic thresher shark fins to the Asian to the Asian markets, most most specifically Hong Kong and China. So you're actually um, able to find not only are you now able to identify dried shark fins being sold in Hong Kong, but you're able to figure out where they were caught. Where they come from. Yeah, where they come from. Like as I said, like the eastern the Eastern Pacific is quite a large region. It comes from all the way to the US to Peru, basically. Um 
So it's a, it's a huge region, but that's definitely a region of concern, given that, that our data is showing scalloped hammerheads and pelagic thresher sharks, both critically and, and critically endangered and endangered, uh, as being a, a place where, where a lot of these sharks are being caught and uh, transported to, to the markets in, in Southeast Asia. So it's definitely a tool that we've been uh, able to use in, in, in the last couple of years. And, and I think in a few weeks to a month, we should be able to have out the similar results for the silky shark, which I cannot um, tell you what we found <laughs> out, but it's quite, it's quite important. So, so you can expect that, that research to come out in the following weeks. That is amazing. Uh, last question for you. What's your favorite species of shark? Um, <laughs> I, I have two in my top. One is because I, I just thought that just think they're amazing, which is the oceanic white deep shark. But also I think my other favorite one would be the pelagic thresher. And that's because, uh, my first ever project that I did on my own or that I led was on pelagic thresher sharks. Uh, I used that same project just now to be able to trace the the fins from Hong Kong to a population of origin. So I think I've completed like a full circle with the pelagic thresher and, and that I just love that shark. And you're doing so much to help them. Diego, your work's amazing. And thank you so much for chatting to me. And I'm going to make sure that everybody can have all your details on how to follow you on Instagram, follow your adventures, be able to read your papers and stay up to date with your amazing work. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, expect some more more good stuff next year. We'll we'll keep um, we'll keep working in the in the markets in Hong Kong, and we are expanding to to do other projects at the beginning of the supply chain. Like I said, just not Hong Kong, but which countries are are a priority to work on um, on sharks inside the state enforcement. So there's definitely good news and and good stuff coming out hopefully soon. Awesome. Diego, thank you. Have a wonderful night over there. Goodbye from Australia. And we will chat soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me in your first podcast. Ah, Good luck with it. It's an honor. Thank you. I hope I did okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were, you were fine. Ah, awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Diego. <laughs>